everybody and welcome to the Dave Ellswick show on 101.1 FM the answer obviously Dave's not with us today and we're sure gonna miss him Dave will be back most likely on Monday of next week we're hoping so anyway and in the meantime you've got Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance sitting in with Dave I'm an old friend of Dave's and I've known him ever since he first came to the city and we're mostly pretty uh, simpatico when it comes to philosophy of life. And uh, one thing that I was drawn to Dave for when when he first came here, he was a pro-life Christian libertarian. That's something that you don't run into just a whole huge gaggle of. And since that's what I was, too, we were naturally kind of attracted to each other and became good friends right after Dave first came to town in 2000. And uh, he and I worked together for Harry Brown in 2000, the Libertarian candidate of that year. And then later in 2001 and 2002, we worked on the Axe the Food Tax campaign together. I think Dave's a great guy. Now, he's kind of left his Libertarian roots behind and gone full-on Republican in recent years. I hadn't followed him in that regard exactly. I, I never was a Republican myself. Those guys are way too far left for me. But you do what you can, and my my philosophy when I go into the voting booth is to vote for the anti-socialist candidate with the best chance of winning. And uh, more often than not, that turns out to be the Republican. So we, even though I'm not a Republican, I've been – those of you who are, and I know probably the majority of Dave's audience either are or lean that way, and I'm kind of leaning with you. So uh, we're simpatico with the show's – General thrust to smaller government, lower taxes, more freedom, and uh, opposing the socialist agenda, whether it comes disguised as uh, eco-friendly green movements that actually represent the uh, watermelon segment of politics, you know, green on the outside, red on the inside, or, or just the general pinkos that have been coming out of the woodwork lately. It seems like being a socialist in America doesn't have the pejorative or negative connotations that it used to, and we're certainly involved in some kind of a political and cultural war right now. And we're going to talk a little about that cultural war as the socialist end of the political spectrum tries to undo the results of the 2016 presidential election, which were quite a disappointment to them. So they're in the process right now of carrying on impeachment. And impeachment is something that's pretty rare in the entire history of the United States. We've been around as a country for 240 years, roughly. And in that time, there have been four impeachment inquiries. So far, two of them have led to actual impeachment votes, both of which were successful. And the one time that a president was actually removed as a result of impeachment inquiries was uh, the time other than the current one, which is still ongoing and may or may not uh, result in a vote for impeachment. But the of the previous three, the only one that did not result in an impeachment vote was that against Richard Nixon in 18, or excuse me, in 1974. And of course, Nixon resigned uh, the 
previous impeachments. You had in the 1860s, the Republican Congress impeached Democrat President Andrew Johnson, who'd been Lincoln's last vice president. They had impeached Andrew Johnson for violating a statute that had been passed for the purpose of restricting the president's constitutional powers. It's very dubious whether the law that Johnson uh, broke was really a constitutional law, but it was a law, and he broke it, and that was the basis for the impeachment inquiry, which resulted in him being impeached. That is, the House of Representatives voted to bind him over for trial to the Senate, where the Senate failed to kick him out of office by one vote. In the next impeachment inquiries, uh, about 105 years later, when Richard Nixon is being uh, investigated, and it wasn't the actual crime. The crime was committed by the minions of the re-election committee of President Richard Nixon, who broke into the Democratic National Headquarters in the Watergate Hotel and rifled through their stuff and got caught. And these so-called plumbers, the thugs and mercenaries and goons that had been hired by the committee to re-elect the president, or creep, headed by then-Attorney General... Uh, oh, had a mental block. I'll think of it later. But uh, in any event, the Attorney General, who was the chairman of the committee to re-elect the president, had hired these so-called plumbers to break into Democratic National Headquarters, and they got caught. And the reason Nixon was... Uh, impeached is because evidence was developed that he and his top minions had been trying to cover up that crime and prevent it from escalating into the political issue it did. He was reelected in a 49-state landslide during the year that, uh, thank you, Zach, he was reelected during the time, just shortly after the Watergate controversy took place. He was reelected in a 49-state landslide. And then it was over the course of the next two years that his position was eaten away as drip by drip, dribble by dribble. Things came out about things that he had done trying to cover up the criminal activity by those minions who'd acted without his knowledge or permission in doing the original crime. So that's when you hear him say it's the cover-up, not the crime. That goes back to Watergate. They ended up not even holding a vote on impeachment because the senators from the Republican Party in those days went to Richard Nixon, told him, you're going to get impeached, and we're not sticking with you. If you're impeached, we'll vote to kick you out. Because he was shown to have been involved in criminal activity. So that impeachment never took place because the president resigned and left. That's the only time an impeachment inquiry has ever led to a president actually being removed. Similar to the situation with Andrew Johnson, with uh, Bill Clinton, he was actually caught in actual crimes. In fact, was eventually convicted of actual criminal activity, for which he really got a slap on the wrist. But there were actual crimes and actual criminal activity involved with obstruction of justice, suborning perjury, and so forth. And so the House in 1998 brought articles of impeachment against Bill Clinton, and then that went to a trial in the Senate where not enough people wanted to see him removed to vote to kick him out, and he got to keep his office. It's, as 
Our former Senator Dale Bumper said at the time, in defense of Bill, it's only two years. What harm can he do? Well, Mark Rich and his little brother and all the other people he pardoned and let off the hook from federal crimes. But that's another story. And now we're involved in the fourth impeachment inquiry in our country's history. Uh, It will be interesting to see whether it actually ends up leading to a vote for impeachment. Some people think that this is what they call a collapsible impeachment. They're just doing it so they can so that they can smear the president and bring up things that will be used against him in the campaign and that things are going so poorly for them and they're doing such a poor job in making their case that they're not going to be able to uh, they're not going to be able to bring a conviction anyway in the Senate so they may end up dropping it before they actually have a vote. If they do have a vote, It'll almost surely be party line, and if it is, he'll become the third president in the history of the country to actually be impeached, which won't mean that he will have any chance of being kicked out of office by the Senate, but they'll be able to spend the entire presidential election cycle of 2020 calling him impeached President Donald Trump, which is probably the thing. They really want to do everything they can to win in 2020. They're not going to kick him out of office, but this whole impeachment strategy is almost surely part of their 2020 plans. So we're going to hear a little bit about uh, what some of the newsmakers of the day have been saying about this impeachment attempt. And you're welcome to call in and join the conversation. You don't need to agree with me. You don't even need to agree with Dave or anyone else. You can call in. We would love to get a contrary opinion. If you think that I'm full of baloney, Feel free to call and tell me so. Our number is 501-823-0965, and we'd be glad to have your phone calls. Dave doesn't always take a lot of calls because he's got a lot to say, and he's usually got some pretty interesting people here to talk with. Uh, we're not going to have as many guests today, and rather than listen to me the whole time, we would love to hear from you. So plan on giving us a call at 501 823 0965 if you can get away. Now, uh, we've got a few sound, sound bites we want to share with you in this first hour. And before we have our first break, I want to give you what Nancy Pelosi says about uh, a certain Mr. James Rosen, who is a newsman, used to be for Fox, and uh, he's cut number one. Go ahead with that if you would, please, Zach. Uh, we hear it said routinely, and of course it's true, that impeachment is a political process, not a legal one. And yet, as we can all observe, many of the accoutrements surrounding the legal process are inherent in this political process. We have counsels, depositions, subpoenas, threats of perjury, and so forth. Uh, this was made starkly clear yesterday by Chairman Schiff, it seemed to me, where he reminded the minority that he would do everything necessary to ensure the legal rights of the whistleblower to That's preserve right. anonymity right. Uh, in this political setting. And so I wonder if you could explain to the American people why the legal rights of the whistleblower uh, should prevail in this political setting over those of President Trump who should ordinarily enjoy a right to confront his accuser. Well, let me just say this. I'll say to you, Mr. Republican Talking Points, what I said to the President of the United States. When you talk about the whistleblower, you're coming into my wheelhouse. I have more experience and intelligence than anybody in the Congress. Anybody's ever served. 25 years on the committee as top Democrat, ex officio, a speaker and leader. I was there when we wrote the whistleblower laws. The whistleblower of 
is there to speak truth to power and have protection from doing that. And any any retribution or harm coming to a whistleblower undermines our ability to hear truth about power. So I will defend the rights of the whistleblower vehemently. Well, so Nancy Pelosi thinks that having been on the Intelligence Committee and having been in the leadership makes her intelligent. That's kind of debatable right there. But she makes a number of mistakes in this little bite. First place, it was kind of funny, I thought. She called James Rosen Mr. Republican talking points. James Rosen is one of the most straight-up, forward news guys that I think I have seen. When he was on Fox, he came on with a a hard-nosed demand to get information, but he didn't do it in such a way as it presented it with a slant built in the way a lot of the CNN guys do. Uh, I thought that was kind of strange, her calling James Rosen Mr. Republican talking points. What he talked about were actual facts there. And uh, when Nancy Pelosi starts talking about this whistleblower like he's somebody especially precious and somebody especially protected, uh, she misconstrues the whistleblower statute. The guy's not officially a whistleblower. You're not a whistleblower when you pass on secondhand information. It's in the statute that you have to have firsthand information to be a whistleblower. And the whistleblower is supposed to have his job protected. He's not supposed to be guaranteed anonymity for life. So this was sort of all misconstrued from the start. Uh, We don't have in this country a two-tiered justice system, at least in theory we don't. Now, there are those who would argue we do. The Clintons get one level of justice. Those of us who are not Clintons, get a different level of justice. We can't do things that they get away with doing on a regular basis. It seems to be that uh, Ms. Pelosi is especially uh, het up and sensitive about this situation. She's carrying on with absolutely no basis in reality when she talks about this whistleblower as someone who needs protecting. The whistleblower... We already know who it is, uh, and we know that the whistleblower is someone who worked with Joe Biden on his campaign. The guy's a Democratic operative. He's part of the deep state Obama appointee group that are still lingering on. And he went to his boss and said, oh, gee, so-and-so told me that Trump said this, and I'm so disturbed about that. That's not official whistleblower status right there. All right, let's do one more short one from Nancy Pelosi before we take our first break of the afternoon. Cut number two, please, Zach. But uh, yesterday you heard an appointment of the president speak in very uh, unambiguous terms. A courageous public servant. Uh, The the devastating testimony corroborated evidence of bribery uncovered in the inquiry and that the president abused power and violated his oath by threatening to withhold military aid and a White House meeting in exchange for an investigation into his political rival, a clear attempt of the president to give himself the advantage in the 2020 election. Doing so, as I've said to the president, jeopardize our national security, undermine our national security, jeopardize the integrity of our electoral system, violate your oath of office. Okay, Ms. Pelosi continues to live in a dream world where She's in charge, 
that's the one place that she is in charge. I don't think she is in charge of the House of Representatives anymore, although she does wield that big gavel. But she thinks this is a devastating testimony of bribery. Well, if you want to find out what the Democrats have been doing, just look at what they're accusing the Republicans of. They accused the Republicans of colluding with the Russians when it was Hillary who went out and hired a British spy to get Russian dirt made up about Donald Trump to use in the campaign, and that later got used to set up the entire Mueller investigation. And bribery? So they're saying that because the investigation of Joe Biden would hurt Joe Biden politically, and Joe Biden is a political opponent of Donald Trump's, ergo, Donald Trump is getting a bribe if he gets any kind of dirt on Joe Biden. Well, if this is true, if this is real, that would mean that all you got to do to protect yourself against graft and corruption charges is to run for president, and according to the Democrats, you become sacrosanct and can't be touched. All right, we got to pay some bills, so i got to take a break here. Before we get to the bottom of the hour, if you want to talk to us, give us a call, 823-0965. Be glad to put you on, agree or disagree. Thanks. You got Carl Kimball sitting in for the beloved Dave Ellswick, who will be back on Monday here on 101.1. We've been discussing the latest impeachment news, and we're going to give Nancy Pelosi one more say on this exciting topic before we take the bottom of the hour news. Go ahead, cut three. I salute Chairman Schiff uh, for the dignity and the statesmanship that he brought and the members of the Intelligence Committee, the Democrats, uh, for uh, showing great patriotism and professionalism with which they are conducting the proceedings. I'm very proud of them. I said to the members at the beginning of the day yesterday, when we take the oath to protect and defend the Constitution, we agree and we become custodians of the Constitution the Constitution, the brilliance of our founders to create a republic, a system of checks and balances, three co-equal branches of government, separation of powers, each a check and balance on the other. As custodians of the Constitution, we must be defenders of our democracy because our democracy depends on that republic and not a monarchy. Article 2 that says I can do whatever I want. So again, with that responsibility, we go forward sadly, prayerfully, say with a heavy heart, because it's not what we came here to do, but we must uphold our oath of office. Well, I had a little trouble uh, holding back peals of laughter while she talked about the uh, professionalism and patriotism of those running the hearing, but that's uh, her opinion and she's welcome to it. We're going to be coming back after the bottom of the hour news and talk about it. Give us a call at 823-0965. That's 501-823-0965. You can be on the Dave Ellswick Show if you give us a call. We'll be talking to you after the break. And welcome back. You've got Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance sitting in for his old buddy Dave. And we're talking about the impeachment process going on. So the Democrats are, are professionally and patriotically trying to manage to kick the president out of office because supposedly he was trying to use his position as president to cause the Ukrainians to help him in getting dirt on the former vice president. Now, that actually didn't happen. That's not in the transcript. That's what they want you to think happened. 
But that's not exactly the way the transcript goes. Nonetheless, uh, in the meantime, what he was trying to get them to investigate was actually someone in the Ukraine arranging it so that the family of Joe Biden got hundreds of thousands of dollars of actual cash funneled through his son into his family. Now, what was the bribe? Possibly having an investigation of a potential political opponent or getting hundreds of thousands of dollars shoveled through to your family? Let's ask Bob what he thinks. Bob, how's the weather out in Conway, my man? Are you doing all right? It's quite beautiful. I should have taken a day off and gone fishing. All right. Glad you called the Dave Ellswick show today. Tell me what's on your mind. Um, two things, two things. I'm upset about the double standard that the Democrats are putting us through and the fact that um, the double standard is they, they cry no one's above the law. Well, Hillary Clinton sure was, and Barack Obama sure was. Not and, to mention our boy point, Bill. Oh, yeah. And and to throw the American population uh, populace under the <clears> bus <throat> just because they lost the election, shameful, shameful. I agree, that's, that's Bob. That's really my comment. Yeah, All right. Yeah, quite terrible. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. We're glad you called the Dave Ellswick Show. Hope you keep listening. Uh, yeah, I think he's right, and uh, as – a wiser man than I once said, if it wasn't for double standards, the Democrats would have no standards at all. And and yes, Hillary Clinton does things that, boy, they put Martha Stewart in jail for, things that they put, oh, this, this kid that was on a submarine, he was an American sailor that was on a submarine. He took a selfie of himself sitting at his station in the submarine and emailed it to his parents. Look at me, Mom and Dad. I'm at work in a submarine. Oh, man, it was a picture of the inside of an American atomic submarine. You're not supposed to let that stuff out. The kid made a mistake. He shouldn't have done that. But it was not exactly him trying to funnel information to the Russians. But he was threatened with big-time jail time over that for violating the uh, National Secrets Act, he had, he had released classified information in an unsecured way that was a violation of the law. Well, Hillary released thousands of pieces of classified information in an unsecured way, and, and there still hadn't been any talk about her going to jail other than, other than the locker-up chants at the Trump rallies, which, you know, it's not going to happen because— Basically, our caller Bob from Conway is right. There are double standards, and the standards are very different for Democrats. Here's an example of those double standards. Now, Kellyanne Conway, I you know I didn't know that until this morning, but she used to work for CNN's been 20 years ago. But before she became a political operative, she was at one time a reporter for CNN, and she knows this Wolf Blitzer. She was being introduced, in, uh, interviewed. Excuse me. Pardon, pardon my tripping over my tongue. She, Kellyanne Conway, the special counselor to the president, was being interviewed by famous CNN super uber anchor Wolf Blitzer. And I thought this was kind of an interesting exchange they had this morning. Cut four, please. 
a final question, a sensitive question, uh, and it's it's a political question. It's a substantive question. I don't want to talk about your marriage. I know that there are, <laughs> there are, there are issues there. Your husband, George Conway, he's a Wait, lawyer. Did you just say? Your husband, George did, Conway. Did you just say there are issues there? You don't want to talk about marriage? I don't want to talk about... No, I don't want to Why talk... Why did you say that? I don't want to talk about your marriage. I don't want to talk about your... I want to talk about a substantive point that your husband, George Conway, made. He was on television all day yesterday during this, the first day of the impeachment hearings, and he said this about the president of the United States. I just want your reaction to the substance of what so he said. So before you play the clip, which I haven't seen, why? And why are you doing that? Because, because he's a legal scholar, he's a lawyer, and he was really going after the president of the United States, and he was and, all over and the television yesterday. And, and come on, I just want you to, I just, and he's married to me? But, you know, he happens to be married to you. What's but you can run that? The, you can run the clip of Jeffrey. He happens to be married to me. That's bizarre. Correct. But he's uh, also a legal scholar. He's, he's got a substantive point. Listen to I what it, Jeffrey Tubin's point, your, your senior legal analyst. I loved his point on CNN yesterday. We, we don't have to play a competitor's clip. You could just play the CNN clip where Jeffrey Tubin said it's a problem that uh, that um, Taylor and Kent never met. Donald Trump. He said to Jake, it's a problem. It's, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Jake. Jake Tapper said something I'm like, not, I'm, I'm not disagreeing you know, with either. It, they might have to they might have to meet the whistleblower, at least talk to talk to him or her, him in private, because you have to be able to confront your accused. Right. But so, you, you should so not here, have just here, said to your audience, um, I don't want to talk to you about your marriage quote. I know there are issues. Why? Why would you say that? What is it? I don't want to talk about don't? your I don't want to talk about. Your why marriage. would you say there are issues? L listen to what your husband said. <laughs> I'll play the club. The problem with Donald Trump is he always sees himself first. Trump is all about Trump. And that's why it was inevitable he'd get himself into the soup once again. And that's what that's what this is all about. He's using the he was using the power of the presidency in its most unchecked area, foreign affairs, mm -hmm. to advance his own personal interests as opposed to the country's. All right, that's a serious allegation, a serious charge. He was using uh, the power of the presidency, its most unchecked area, foreign affairs, to advance his own personal interests as opposed to the country's. That is his opinion. And we, I don't think MSNBC was lacking for anti-Trump voices. And we've heard things like that said on CNN for three years. And we've heard things like that said on that network for three years and elsewise. And where, honestly, where is the shame where is the introspection of people who have said for three years, respectfully, Wolf, actually beginning in May of 2017, I'll quote your wife's husband right now. I won't talk about your marriage, but I'll quote your wife's husband. 2017, you asked Angus King, are we getting closer to impeachment? I mean, where does anybody ever feel badly about getting it so wrong? We sort of look the other way of how wrong everybody was here and elsewhere with the elections. I was on your network every single day as gracefully and respectfully as I could, laying out the case as to why Donald Trump would beat Hillary Clinton. I have a living, breathing video catalog, which is why I don't worry about anything. When people say, well, I always knew he'd win. I said it all the time, really, because you were sleeping when I was on TV in the morning and at night. So we have a living, breathing catalog on CNN and elsewhere. Here's why we're going back to Pennsylvania. Here's why we're going. It's the same stuff all the time. What you just quoted is said every single day by other voices, but you wanted to put it in my husband's voice because you think somehow that that'll help your ratings or that you're really sticking it to Kellyanne Conway. And let me make very clear, you didn't stick it to Kellyanne Conway. I think you embarrassed yourself, and I, I'm embarrassed for you because this is CNN now. 
I, I looked up to you when I was in college and law school. I would turn on CNN to see what Wolf Blitzer had to say about war, famine, uh, disruption abroad. I really respected you for all those years as somebody who would give you know, us the news. And now the Kelly news Ann, is what somebody's husband says. Do you know how many times network. we spoke about, uh, you know, James Carville and Mary Madeline, a Democrat and a Republican, happily married individuals who totally disagreed on all sorts of political that is issues. Really do you know how many times? Do you know how many times I would ask them on television about the differences they had? Uh, they didn't get into a, a sensitive discussion as long. I'm not in a sensitive discussion. You are. Mary Madeline and James Carville, uh, they would often, they would often totally disagree on television. They would have a, a serious discussion. Your husband made you a, a serious. You want to know what Mary Madeline thinks of your line of questioning right now? Because you, I know. Uh, you know, I haven't spoken to Mary Madeline in a, in a while. She's uh -huh. a lovely woman, James Carville, an old friend. She's brilliant. Very good people. You like them. I like them. He helped do what I helped I was do just trying to get you to react to this, to this allegation the that, uh, the, that the president was using the power of the presidency, its most unchecked area, foreign affairs, to advance his own personal interests as opposed to the country's. Sure. And, and you said fairly, you disagree. disagree. I respectfully okay, disagree, and fine. I'll tell you why. And you know who else disagrees? You know who else doesn't have information, evidence of that? are the people who testified yesterday, because they also don't know the president. They've actually never met the president. They admitted that yesterday. They were in no such calls about this. Which is a fair point. That's a lot there, isn't there? I tell you, I had to laugh. Uh, he tries to lead into this segment where he's trying to get Kellyanne Conway to comment on her husband's a big never-Trumper, and she, he wants her to comment on her husband's cutting remarks against the president and he leads in with it says says well you know don't want to talk about your marriage i know there are issues there and tries to slide on and she really called him on it she put the wood to that blitzer and uh, she really i thought uh i thought she really told him what cnn has become uh she made that one statement that ought to replace james earl jones saying this is cnn with Kellyanne Conway going, this is CNN? <laughs> well, uh, a great news organization becomes just another propaganda tool of the socialist machine, it seems. And she was right. The people that testified yesterday, and you'd think they'd lead off with their star witnesses, but the guys that testified yesterday had never had a, a conversation with Donald Trump. They didn't hear the phone call. They didn't really have any facts at all. And when they were asked if there was an impeachable offense, there was dead silence because neither one of them could speak to us. So, well, uh, I'm not here to speak to that. All right. Let's, uh, let's see if we can get a little laugh before the break here and do cut number five. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. <laughs> Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. That's kind of like that's kind of like what it was like, you know. I was told by one of my employees that he had heard from another employee that there was someone who'd overheard the conversation who said there was something wrong with it. Uh, you know what's wrong is when you got elected officials that can go around to foreign countries who have then, uh, for some reason, the compunction to find ways to funnel dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to that politician's family. That's what I want to know. How did Hunter Biden get that job? 
Could Hunter Biden speak Ukrainian? Had Hunter Biden any experience whatsoever in the oil and gas business? For that matter, had Hunter Biden ever been involved in running a a successful business of any type? What made Hunter Biden's expertise on the board of a Ukrainian oil company worth 50 grand a month in salary? And that's chump change compared to what the Chinese communists put up to fund his uh, ventures right after he flew into Beijing on Air Force Two. This is all subterfuge. This is all, don't look at this hand, look at this hand over here. Don't look at what I'm slipping out of the deck with my right hand. Watch this shiny thing I'm holding up in my left hand. That's what this whole impeachment inquiry is about. Don't look at Hunter Biden. Don't look at Joe Biden. Don't don't pay any attention to the hundreds of thousands of dollars being funneled to Democrat politicians. For that matter, don't pay any attention to things that now, if if an overheard private conversation ought to be a uh, grist for an impeachment here, I thought the worst was when you had a certain president of the United States caught on an open hot mic telling the puppet figurehead of the Russian Republic, tell Vladimir, I'll have more flexibility after the next election. Yeah, in other words, once I fooled the American people into thinking that I'm a decent guy who had nothing to do with Benghazi and I'm not really a socialist and won't ruin the country and I'm not in the process of wrecking the economy, tell Vladimir that I'll also be able to disarm the United States from being able to uh, do anything about his militaristic schemes once I'm past the election, and I'm a lame duck, and then you know, I don't have to worry about being elected anymore, so I don't have to worry about fooling the American people anymore to my being a patriotic American who actually is in favor of things that are good for the country instead of being in the process of selling this out to the Russians the way he sold us out to the Iranians and the way he sold us out to any number of foreign interests. But no, 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 no. That guy was the greatest president we've ever had. It's this Trump guy that's so awful. Well, you know, I tell you, it was like throwing a light switch. When Barack Obama left the presidency and Trump came in, I was never a fan of Donald Trump's, didn't hold him in high regard, didn't even like him, didn't have any respect for him. But man, when the worst president of my lifetime, if not the entire history of the republic, Barack Obama went out the door and Donald Trump came in, Good things started happening to America. The Democrats hate that. They've got to stop good things from happening to America because otherwise Donald Trump might get reelected and they have to have their power. That's the most important thing in the world. We have to have a break. We'll be back after we pay some bills. Got to raise some money for Dave. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance sitting in for Dave and delighted to be here, delighted to be talking with you, and I don't know how stimulating I can be compared to good old Dave, but we'll see if we can stir up something. Now, you're welcome to give us a call, 823-0965, local, 501-823-0965. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us your opinion on any of the news of the day. And I tell you, we have been looking at this nasty impeachment business that's been going on, and there's a fellow that's the 
so-called ranking member on the Intelligence Committee. That means he's the highest-ranking member of the minority party. Uh, his name's Kevin Nunez, and Nunez got an awful lot of grief. He was, for at least uh, at least two years, he was the chairman of that committee, and he got a lot of grief because he found out what they were trying to do to Donald Trump in the Russia collusion hoax. He's the one who uncovered the evidence that the deep state, the intelligence agencies, all people that were appointed by Barack Obama were using this entirely false Steele dossier that was an oppo research put together at the behest of and, and paid for by Hillary Clinton and the DNC, and were using that as an excuse before the FISA court, the secret star chamber intelligence court, to be able to surveil the Trump campaign and later to surveil the Trump presidency. When he said he was being wiretapped, everybody laughed because they don't have wires and they don't actually tap them anymore, but everybody knew what he meant, and it was going on. He was being electronically surveilled just as he knew that he was. And Nunez is one of the people that proved that. He's got a short quote here, cut number six, where he talks about what's going on. Ambassador Taylor and Mr. Kent, I'd like to welcome you here. I'd like to congratulate you for passing the Democrat Star Chamber auditions held for the last weeks in the basement of the Capitol. It seems you agreed, witting or unwittingly, to participate in a drama. But the main performance the Russia hoax has ended, and you've been cast in the low-rent Ukrainian sequel. Okay. He mentioned the Star Chamber there, too. The Star Chamber goes all the way back to the 13th century, to the realm of Edward I, Plantagenet, King of England. And he actually had a castle that had a star-shaped chamber, a room that was shaped like a star in it. And that was where he held his secret meetings with his closest advisors. The parliament was in its very early stages then, but it didn't have anywhere the power it does now. And the king, unlike now, who is merely a figurehead, as the queen is, but the uh, monarch then actually wielded real power in the star chamber is where the king met with his most intimate advisors and decided upon the sentence of treason for certain people who had erred in ways that uh, he thought should be punished. And he and his advisors would meet as a secret court in the star chamber, and they would decide that a certain member of the realm, usually a nobleman with lots of land and money, uh, was now going to be declared an outlaw, a treasonous person, who it was all right to have put to death and all of his lands and all of his money confiscated to the benefit of the crown. That's where the term star chamber comes from. It was a secret court in which without any real due justice or any real judicial proceedings, a kangaroo court in private would decide on the fate of a citizen who would then suffer the ultimate punishment because it would benefit his king. That's what a star chamber was. Now, the FISA court's been compared to a star chamber by me, among others, uh, because in the, in the FISA court, you have the FBI director or members of the intelligence community will go meet with a judge and say, well, we have this information that so-and-so is about to commit a terrorist act against the United States, and we need to surveil him and make sure that we can take care of what needs to be taken care of. 
and the court would then sign off on it. Well, it was a star chamber uh, comparison that Devin Nunez made to what Adam Schiff's been doing because he's been having these secret meetings down in the basement, and that's what he referred to as the star chamber. Okay, you can give us a call and talk about this too. We got a little more to go on this. We'll go on to local issues and talk about some other things a little later this afternoon, but I thought that this was too important. It's only been the fourth time in our country's history someone has been um, facing an impeachment inquiry. Only the second time in our lifetime that it's actually moved towards an impeachment vote. I think it's important enough to talk about. Call us when we get back, 823-0965. We'll be glad to talk to you. You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We're delighted to have you with us. And no, Dave's not here. And yes, the Dave Ellswick show's always more stimulating and a better show when Dave is here and we miss him. But I think Dave should be back by probably by Monday. And uh, we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, you've got Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance, Dave's old pal and fellow libertarian who's uh, on the air with you this afternoon, subbing in for Dave. And I don't want to beat this dead horse all afternoon, but gosh, this impeachment story is the most important thing that's happening. It's only the fourth time in the history of the country it's even been contemplated. And if they do move to an actual impeachment vote, it will only be the third time that that has ever been done Uh, The previous two times it passed, but the previous two times the Senate failed to convict. So it may all end up being moot, but it's an important part of the drama that's playing out. And, of course, we know why it's happening. The Democrats know that they're not going to get President Trump kicked out of office, but they really think they're going to damage him too badly to be able to win the 2020 election, which is really their objective. And, of course, Nancy Pelosi got kind of cornered into doing this. She said, I don't know how many times that they weren't going to impeach unless they got bipartisan support for it. Well, their bipartisan support was all but two Democrats and zero Republicans was the bipartisan support that she had to open the impeachment inquiry, which, of course, she didn't even want to do that. But she kind of got cornered into it because it was being run in such an obviously unfair and clandestine uh, manner that uh, it was starting to bounce back on them in a way they didn't want. Well, the real leader of the Democratic Party in Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, had something to say about that. Go cut 12. Supported impeachment uh, since before you were elected to Congress, uh, and you made the case that the president could be impeached for profiting off the presidency, for his conduct in the Russia investigation. What message 
Congresswoman, will it send if Democrats don't incorporate, for example, those issues into the upcoming articles of impeachment? Well, I think many of those considerations will be taken up by the Judiciary Committee when all of um, this evidence is brought forth. So we'll see. I personally do believe that the president has engaged in flagrant violations of the Emoluments Clause. I'm concerned that we would allow this corruption to continue. But at the end of the day, we have to be able to come together as a caucus. And if it is this Ukrainian allegation that is what brings the caucus together, um, then I think we have to run with however we unify the House. And so while I believe personally that we should be pursuing an invest and investigating quite fragrant, fragrant, flagrant abuses of the emolument laws, um, even reporting as recently as, as, may, as the suspicious stops at Trump properties, even in um, congressional delegations or rather in um, foreign trips. I think that all of this is, is game for investigation, but we also need to move quite quickly because we're talking about the potential compromise of the 2020 elections. And so this is not just about something that has occurred. This is about preventing a potentially disastrous outcome from occurring next year. They're trying to prevent a disastrous outcome from taking place next year that is President Trump's re-election. That's the disastrous outcome that this is all about. And she knows that all of this talk about impeachment, all they've got so far is hearsay. They don't even have a real crime so far. While real crimes have been ignored again and again when they've taken place from the other side. So there you have the uh, real leader of the Democratic Party in Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, telling us why we really have to have this impeachment. It's about 2020. Mm-hmm. Meantime, old buddy Paul Calvert's just arrived. Thanks yes, for joining the conversation, Paul. You doing all right today? I am, yes. And so my, my, my buddy um, Caleb Bumgardner is on his way. He's, All right. a, he's an attorney, and he's going to come on and, and talk to us about legal stuff. And so if anybody wants to call in and ask legal questions, he's willing to Great. take calls and ask and answer questions. Well, once he gets here, we'll open that segment of the program. In the meantime, if you'd like to talk about the impeachment proceedings going in in Washington, you can reach us here at 501-823-0965. And before I go back to Paul to get his opinion on this latest stuff, I want you to hear Jim Jordan, who uh, Jim Jordan's a brilliant, brilliant congressman and the, an attorney, and uh, he was put on this committee. Our own congressman Crawford from East Arkansas chose to pull out of this committee and give his seat to Jim Jordan because Jim Jordan is so good at interviewing and cross-examining these witnesses, uh, and we're going to have him talking to the two gentlemen who were the star impeachment witnesses yesterday. Cut nine, please, Zach. Yield to Mr. Jordan. Thank the gentleman for yielding. Ambassador Taylor, thank you for being here. Um, AIDS held up on July 18th, is that right? That's when I first heard about it, uh, Mr. Then it's, and then it's released, Ambassador Taylor, on September 11th. And we know that from your deposition, in those 55 days that aid is delayed, you met with President Zelensky three times. The first one was July 26th, the day after the famous call now between President Trump and President Zelensky. President Zelensky meets with you, Ambassador Volker, and Ambassador Sondland. And again, according to your deposition and your testimony, there was no linkage of security assistance dollars to investigating Burisma or the Bidens. Second meeting is August 27th. Again, in this 55-day time frame, second meeting is August 27th. President Zelensky meets with you and Ambassador Bolton and others. And again, there's no linkage of dollars, security assistance dollars, to an investigation of the Bidens. 
Then, of course, the third meeting is September 5th. President Zelensky meets with you and Senators Johnson and Murphy. And once again, there is no linkage of security assistance dollars to an investigation of Burisma or the Bidens. <coughs> Three meetings with the president of Ukraine, the new president, and no linkage. That's accurate? Ms. Jordan, certainly accurate on the first two, uh, first two meetings, because to my knowledge, uh, the Ukrainians were not aware of the hold on assistance until until the 29th of August. So the political article. The political article. Um, the third the third meeting that you mentioned with the senators, Senator yep. Murphy and Senator Johnson, um, there was discussion of the security assistance, but the uh, linkage. But there was not there was not discussion of linkage. Three meetings face-to-face -face with President Zelensky, no linkage. Yet, in your deposition, you said this, and you said it again the first hour of the majority. My clear understanding was security assistance money would not come until President Zelensky committed to pursue the investigation. My clear understanding was they weren't going to get the money until President Zelensky committed to pursue the investigations. Now, with all due respect, Ambassador, your clear understanding was obviously wrong, because it didn't happen. President Zelensky didn't announce he was going to investigate Burisma or the Bidens. He didn't do a press conference and say, I'm going to investigate the Bidens. We're going to investigate Burisma. He didn't tweet about it. And you just told the ranking member he didn't do the CNN interview and announce he's going to investigate Burisma or the Bidens. So three face-to-face -face meetings. It doesn't come up. No linkage whatsoever. President Zelensky doesn't announce it before the aid is released on the 11th. And yet you said you have a clear understanding that those two things were going to happen. The money was going to get released, but not until there was an investigation. And that, in fact, didn't happen. So what I'm wondering is, where did you get this clear understanding? As I testified, Ms. Jordan, uh, this came from Ambassador Sondland. Well, can you hold one second, Ambassador? I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you a piece of paper from Ambassador Sondland's statement. Very good. And you can take a look at this. Go ahead, though. I want to let you finish. So, Mr. Jordan, should I read this or? No, no, I, no. You, I just want you to have it because I'm going to read it. Oh, very good, very good. Very yeah, good. but I want you to go ahead and finish. You said, Ambassador, you got this from Ambassador Sondland. Uh, that is correct. Um, that um, Ambassador Sondland also said that he talked to President Zelensky and Mr. Yermak and had told them that although this was not a quid pro quo, if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. That was, the, that was one point. Um, it was also uh, the case. Mr. Morrison talked to you, right? No. Uh, what I was going to say is Ambassador Sondland also told me that he recognized that it was a mistake to have told the Ukrainians that only the meeting with the uh, president in the, in the Oval Office was held up on the, uh, in order to get these investigations. No, it was not just the meeting. It was also the security system. That is everything. Was. So those two, those okay. two discussions. No, I understand. Um, okay. All right. So again, just to, just to recap, you had three meetings with President Zelensky. No linkage in those three meetings came up. Ambassador Zelensky didn't announce that he was going to do any investigation of the Bidens or Burismas before the aid was released. He didn't do a tweet, didn't do anything President. on CNN, didn't do any of that. President Zelensky, excuse me. Right. Um, and then what you have in front of you is an addendum that Mr. Sondland made to his testimony that we got a couple weeks ago. It says, Declaration of Ambassador Gordon Sondland, 
I, Gordon Sondland, do hereby swear and affirm as follows. I want you to look at point number two, bullet point number two, second sentence. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmack on September 1st, 2019, in connection with Vice President Pence's visit to Warsaw and a meeting with President Zelensky. Now, this is his clarification. Let me read it one more time. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 2019, in connection with Vice President Pence's visit to Warsaw and a meeting with President Zelensky. We got six people having four conversations in one sentence, and you just told me this is where you got your clear understanding. Which, I, I mean, even though you had three opportunities with President Zelensky for him to tell you, you know what? We're going to do these investigations to get the aid. Didn't tell you three different times. Never makes an announcement. Never tweets about it. Never does a CNN interview. Ambassador, you weren't on the call, were you? The president, you didn't listen on President Trump's call and President Lindsey's call? I did not. You've never talked with Chief of Staff Mulvaney? I never did. You never met the president? That's correct. He had three meetings again with Zelensky and it didn't come up. And two of those they had never heard about as far as I know. And President there was Lins no reason for and it President Zelensky never made an announcement. This, this is what I can't believe. And you're their star witness. You're their first witness. Mr. You're Jordan. the guy. You're the guy based on this, based on, I mean, I've seen, I've seen church prayer chains that are easier to understand than this. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told, now again, this is, I hereby swear and affirm from Gordon Sondland. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison and I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 20. This all happens, by the way. This all happens, by the way, in Warsaw, where Vice President Pence meets with President Zelensky. And guess what? They didn't talk about any linkage either. Time the gentleman's expired. Ambassador Taylor, would you like to respond? The only response, I have two responses, uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you, and Mr. Mr. Jordan. Glad to take those questions. Let me just say um, that I don't consider myself a star witness for anything. They do. You do no, not. Uh, I don't. I, I'm just, I'm responding to, I'm responding Mr. to your question. Please don't interrupt the witness. Um, as I, I, I think I was clear about, I'm not here to take one side or the other or to advocate any particular outcome. So let me just re restate that. Second thing is that uh, my understanding is only coming from people that I talk to. We got and that. I, uh, we got that. Um, and um, I think this clarification uh, from, Mr., from Ambassador Sondland um, was because he said he didn't remember this in, the, in, in his first deposition. So he, he wanted to kind of clarify. But I think, Mr. Jordan, it, I, the way I read this, he remembers it the same way I do. Yeah, and it's real clear, right? It's thank, very clear to thank me. You, thank you, Ambassador Taylor. Um. Okay. That was kind of a long bite, but I thought that it was an important one because I think that the uh, brilliant Representative Jordan very clearly demonstrated that there's nothing here but hearsay. They don't really have anything. Now, so is it kind of a... There was no quid. There was no pro. There was no quo. So is it sort of like one of those things where people say, we know... I've got this feeling, and I'm pretty sure, and, you know, from my experience with people, he's guilty. Hey, he's saying, is this that is kind what of what's I've, going on? All he's, got is, mean, all he's got is, this is what I've been told. That's, what, mm-hmm. that's all that he's got. He's the star witness. Well, I don't know. We know that, that under the Obama-Biden administration, all the Ukrainians got were blankets and meals ready to eat. The anti um, the anti air missiles, those javelin missiles that they were talking about, mm-hmm. and the other military aid, actual guns 
to defend yourself against being shot at by Russian minions, those only came to the Ukrainians after Trump became president. If the question is that these people love Ukraine so much and they love the Ukrainians and want them to be protected against the Russians, oh, and how dare Trump hold up that aid to them? Well, Obama held the aid up to him for his entire term of office. They didn't get aid until Trump, and then Trump got the aid to him even though they didn't open the investigation against Biden, which makes it seem to me like they've got nothing. They've got nothing. But we do have vice, then Vice President Biden, right? I take it back, he was not Vice President when he made this television announcement, but he was describing what happened when he was vice president and he was in the Ukraine, and he told the Ukrainians that they had to fire a certain prosecutor who was looking into his son's company within the hour or he was going to have a billion dollars worth of aid stop. A billion dollars. Hey. So there we go. Uh, Let's see, we need to take a break, pay a few bills before we can finish up this half hour, and we will be back just momentarily on the Dave Ellswick Show. Okay, back on the Dave Ellswick Show, and we've been talking about these uh, strange goings-on up in Washington where they're trying desperately to find an excuse to give our pres the pitch. And there are two people, and we're about to close this part of the show out talking about impeachment here at the end of the half hour. But two things I'd like to get in, because here are two Americans widely known and completely out of touch. The first, John Dean, cut 10. Did this move the needle for any Republican senators who are watching? I find it hard to believe it did. Picking up on where Carl mentioned that there's a conspiracy. We know from what's come out of the executive sessions generally where this is going. And what struck me today in listening to these two witnesses is they already have more than they had against Richard Nixon to impeach him. Yeah. Just on all on all accounts, because the evidence is there. there it was it was my testimony, a few people that were lower in the pecking order than me, and it happened before the tapes. Now, there is a guy who is totally out of touch with reality, John Dean. He's the guy that, according to G. Gordon Liddy, who was the leader of the plumber's squad that broke into the Watergate Hotel, uh, John Dean is the one who arranged the break-in of the Watergate Hotel. Hotel because he was trying to get back dirty pictures of his wife that were being used to uh, blackmail him by someone on the DNC. So, you know, there, there's a guy that, that admitted to wrongdoing, criminality himself, spent time in admittedly, you know, one of those soft, you know, federal prisons where he didn't have to do very hard time. But we're talking about a criminal, a proven and self-admitted liar, and a guy who caused the downfall of a president who'd won a 49-state landslide election through his uh, combination of perfidy, dishonesty, and deceit. So thank you, John Dean, for weighing in the fact that you think this is damning makes me feel like it's probably not that big a deal at all. (laughs) And uh, we're going to close out the half hour with another very well-known voice in American news, NBC's Chuck Todd Cut 16, please. We are living in a moment where we have a part of one of our major political parties that is is just not accepting the premise, is just not accepting facts that are facts, is just prioritized loyalty to a person, even more so than loyalty to a party, let alone loyalty to a country. I always think it's, it's interesting that some of the criticism on some of the right is you're too loyal to a party. It's a loyal to a single individual. 
which is what makes this head-scratching, which is why you always hear all of these comments, well, boy, behind closed doors, so-and-so says X, because even they themselves are uncomfortable how loyal to an individual, but this goes to the president's ability to talk over right, us. I, mean, Democrats, I love how the White House claims today the president's not paying attention. But he's, he's, retweet. he's tweeting like a, a, a tweet every 10 minutes. Right, but the- okay. And we're back on the Dave Ellswick Show. Well, there's Chuck Todd, paid operative by the Democratic Party, uh, newsreader for NBC, and total political hack. He thinks that uh, Republicans are out of touch. Gosh. Well, okay, we're down to about the last minute here. So uh, we're going to come back in the next half hour with something completely different. We're going to turn the show over largely to my Sidekick in crime, Paul Calvert, and his attorneys here with him today, Caleb Bumgardner. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being with us, Caleb. Absolutely. At a Bumgardner law firm from El Dorado, Arkansas. El Dorado, Arkansas, the great town of. Okay, we're going to come back after the bottom of the hour break, and we're going to welcome questions on legal affairs. If you have a general question that you would like to ask the attorney while we have him on hand, we're going to welcome your calls at 501-823-0965. You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show, and we're going to see you after the news. All right, we're back. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Carl Kimball sitting in for Dave Ellswick, and I'm here with my old buddy Paul Calvert, one of the most outstanding voices on the Dave Ellswick Show on a regular basis. Glad to have him back to help me out the rest of the afternoon. And he has his attorney, Caleb Bumgardner, from Eldorado, Arkansas, with us today, and he has graciously agreed to come in and give some free legal advice. I promise you it'll be worth at least every penny that you're paying for it. And we've already got a taker from Hot Springs. Welcome, Sue. What's going on, my man? How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, sir, and thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. Mine's a land dispute question right away, okay? A five-acre piece of property cut in two pieces, a two-acre and three-acre. The gentleman that sold it got a contract from the two people to decide on the right-of-way between the two. That never happened. So did they uh, uh, breach that contract and the, the, the original seller is liable for the right-of-way? That would depend on the specific language of the contract. Does the contract... Uh, give the two parties a specific time frame in which they have to hammer that out, or does it effectively leave it open ended by not placing any kind of time frame on there? That's that's the question. Okay, well, I haven't seen the contract, and that's what uh, I don't know about. And I just uh, wondered if who's liable, and because uh, he broke the re- egress regress law, if he sold it without a right away to it, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, you you uh, well. You don't absolutely have to give somebody ingress or egress to your property unless it uh, goes to a public road or if they have to get to their if they have to cross your property to get to their property. Um, that is that is the that is the deal. It has to cross that property to get to the road. The closest yeah, access to a road. I think yeah, because, generally speaking, you can't be landlocked. Yeah, that's right. If if that's the case, yes, I, but but who's who's liable for for the right of way? They're putting the right away in in the in the legalities of it. Well, see, that's the thing. If the two parties, if the if what you're saying is right, and the contract says that the two parties have to work that out among themselves, then conceivably, um, 
conceivably, if there's no time stipulated in the contract when they have to do that, then it's left open-ended. I'd have to look at that contract. I'd have to have a visual on that contract. Also, the the two-acre person's dead. The three-acre person has sold their their part of their property to somebody else. Then the person who – the person they sold that property to may or may not even be uh, bound by the original contract. Um, When you – sell off your interest to a property, you can sell it uh, with the understanding that anyone you assign your rights to is bound by any previous contracts or they can take free of of any of that. And the uh, other person being who's dead, liability would fall to their estate. Okay, that I understand. Well, that that lets me know I need to see that contract to understand what it says. But then again, if they sold us, then that breaches that contract. Yeah, it all depends on exactly what's written in the contract. And um, okay, okay. That, now the person that owns the three acres that doesn't have the right of way, what's their best uh, means to get a right of way to it? They would probably need to go to. Uh, <clears throat> they'd probably need to go to state court and just be like, "Judge, I've been deprived of. Uh, I've access. been deprived of access to my property. I'm landlocked, and I need to get an injunction to be able. I need the court to give me an injunction for ingress and egress to my property." So is is there a dispute right now? Are the neighbors not getting along well enough so they can't get in and out of their property? Well, 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 no, because um, well, the people that sold the property originally don't like the people that own the three acres now. Okay, <laughs> and uh, vice versa, I guess. And the person that owns the the two acres is the, the descendant of the of the deaf person, and uh, they're starting to get along. Okay, so maybe that would be the best and, place and to I'm start. Curious. So, so now you know who I am. Yes. So. It may be the the most efficacious, uh, easiest way to do this would be if perhaps the the parties could come together and just agree to terms and maybe draft a new contract, and mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter what's in the old contract. the the the, la- the later contract will control. That assumes that you can get everyone to play nice and be adults. <coughs> Assuming that you can do that, that would probably well, be the easiest way to do this. That's the best case scenario, but that probably won't happen. Well, in that case, I mean, some, I mean evidently, already would happen. In that case, somebody's probably going to have to go to court and get an injunction to get onto their property, which I don't think should okay. be a problem. Right. So you you have to All have right. access. Well, yeah, you you can't be locked out of your yes, property, uh, but yeah. Otherwise, you're being deprived of your property, and nobody can do that to you. No private person can do well, that to you. And and you can't do that to an old marine. I'll tell you that right now. I um, wouldn't try. Well, thank you, because you just helped a handicapped a homeless veteran. I appreciate it. Thank you for your service, sir. All right, Sue. Thank you for calling in. I guess, uh, Caleb, that we can say without any shadow of a doubt that definitely the answer is that it depends. That's a very <laughs> lawyerly answer. And and that's also actually more often than you would think and more often than anyone likes the right answer, mm. especially with contracts. Sure. Right. But, he, but he's right, though, that he's got access. Oh, yeah. It's just where, where that access comes in is kind of the thing. But ideally, I think what you're saying is if they can get together and actually figure it out, because, you know, it might be that that, that they can figure out, hey, this, this access road is going to be a whole lot more convenient if we put it right here instead right. of over here. And so it might be cheaper for everybody involved and a lot less trouble and a lot less heartache if they can just get together and say, hey, you know what? 
this won't cost very much if we do as it winston way. churchill said jaw jaw is better than war war mm-hmm. yes. and in this case i guess uh getting together and coming to an agreement would be a lot easier that's, than going to court well, and trying to settle it before a judge wouldn't it i charge a whole lot less to draft a contract for folks than to go to court them, and right. have somebody fight it out somehow that probably makes sense hmm. agreed it's a I think we call it judicial uh, judicial efficiency. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we're very fortunate to have a genuine bona fide Arkansas licensed attorney, uh, Caleb Bumgardner, with us today. And uh, we're going to let you ask him questions. You can call us at 501-823-0965 if you want to ask the attorney. This is a good question to get some legal advice on the cheap. And we're going to go ahead and take our uh, mid-half-hour break a little early, so we got some more time to answer questions on the back end. Give us a call, 501-823-0965, with your questions for the attorney, and we'll see you right after the break. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Carl Kimball sitting in for Dave, and we have left behind those phony, fake pretend lawyers like Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) We're here with a real lawyer, one who's licensed in Arkansas. Caleb Bumgardner is here with us to answer your legal questions at 8230965. Luther and Benton, hang on just for a couple of minutes. We're going first to North Little Rock, where Richard has a question for Caleb. Richard, how are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Good. You're on the line with Caleb. Ask him a question. All right. Um, yeah, I had uh, filed a EEOC complaint for age discrimination back in June, and it's been like five months. And I sent an email to my investigator, and the best answer I could get is that it's still pending review. Now, my question is, everything is time-sensitive on something like this, isn't it? Uh, not for this. No, the way that these things work with employment lawsuits, with discrimination, that sort of thing is you have to have what's called a right to sue letter from the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And that is, uh, what we attorneys in a lawyer speak call a prima facie, uh, way to get into federal court. You having that letter from the EEOC saying that this employer has breached federal employment law, uh, that'll get you into federal court. Now, what'll have to happen once you get that letter is you'll have to hire an employ- uh, an employment law attorney to draw up that complaint, file that lawsuit for you in federal court, and then your employer, presumably if they, uh, if they know what they're doing, then they'll have their attorneys file what's called an answer. And uh, and then you'll go from there. You'll jump off into discovery, and you'll either settle it or you'll you'll take it to a jury. But uh, the time sensitive issue doesn't really kick in here. If anything, it's the opposite because you can't even begin your litigation process without that letter from the EEOC. So the best right. thing you can do is just sit tight. Okay, that's what I was wondering because I have not received that letter yet. Well, the best advice I can give you is to just uh, is to just keep waiting, be patient, and uh, if you can, find something fun to do in the meantime. <laughs> there you go. Thank oh, you for I your did. call, Richard. We appreciate <laughs> Thank you. you. Thank you for calling the Dave Ellswick Show. And now we're going to Benton, Arkansas, and Luther. How are you today, Luther? Thanks for calling the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm all right. I'm all right. I got a question for the lawyer. You're on with him. Yes, sir. Okay. 
All right. Uh, I've been hearing about something called tort reform where uh, uh, we've got all these runaway juries in Arkansas and whatnot. I mean, shouldn't the legislature take away our right? I mean, I mean, you know, can juries be trusted to do the right thing, or should we just depend on the legislature to tell us what to do? May I, uh, may I frame your question another way? Do sure. you do you trust do you trust twelve of your fellow citizens sitting in a box, or do you trust the government? Who do you trust? Well, who do you trust better than that? Well, I, I, I've been reading about all these runaway verdicts and whatnot. And uh, it just seems like to me that the legislature needs to take some of this power away from people like that. Well, uh, can you name one? Uh, the McDonald's verdict, that, that, that $3 million verdict. Oh, the hot coffee the verdict. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I love talking about this case with people. There's, there's another side of that story that a lot of folk don't know. What people, what people know what they've seen on TV and heard about and the internet stuff like that is that this lady went through the drive-through at McDonald's and uh, and she bought a cup of coffee and she spilled it on herself and because the coffee was hot and she you know got burned by it that she filed a lawsuit and won millions of dollars and that all sounds ridiculous and like you're right that is ridiculous if that was the whole story but as another great radio personality uh paul mccartney god rest his soul paul uh, harvey paul sorry gosh well paul, paul mccartney's a beetle paul mccartney's great too but uh he was on the radio a lot right no paul harvey excuse right. me paul the harvey the story. used to say here's the rest of the story and here's the rest of the story with the uh, with the uh, McDonald's lawsuit. What had actually happened was that this lady went to McDonald's and she got a cup of coffee, but the burners at that particular McDonald's were malfunctioning and they were burning really, really, really hot. And there had been other people. Like what? The coffee was running what? 185, 190 degrees? Something yeah, something. It was near, very nearly 200, if not a little over 200 right. degrees. And so, just for a little side it was note. Practically boiled. Sta- standard white styrofoam has a compromise. Um, temperature of about 168 right so it starts getting weak and falling apart just go ahead now sure so there had been other people that had you know taken sips of their coffee and had complained about it but she actually spilled it on herself and she got third degree burns had to go to the hospital had to get skin grafts yeah the most expensive coffee spill perhaps in the history of coffee spills and she did settle the case for a significant amount of money, but her medical bills were such that uh, that settlement went mostly to paying for her skin grafts and her medical bills. So she didn't really come out ahead on that. I don't think I'd take three million bucks in exchange for getting third degree burns all over my crotch. I wouldn't. I think mm-hmm. that, that ain't I, worth it. I think, I, I think I'd skip the well, money. And, and it wasn't three million dollars. It was. It actually settled way down from that. Didn't no, it? I know that's that, that again. It settled for way less than what people actually think it did. Well, I want I want to vote on this, and that, and our and the Supreme Court took that off the ballot. Don't our legislators know what's best for us? I mean, that's what we're saying. <laughs> well, that depends on who you ask. Vote, people vote all kind of different ways. Well, I just I just uh, you know these these, uh, these these runaway jury verdicts are making my insurance go up and everything else, and I I, I just maybe people just don't deserve the power. I mean to. I mean, does anybody agree with me? I mean, where should the power power be with the people? 
With the so, so Luther, I've got a little opinion on this too. So, I, uh, Caleb and I may may have been on different sides of this issue back when this thing came up, and so uh, I, I don't know that the the, the last ballot initiative ballot measure was actually the appropriate way to go about it. But I, I think there may be some rationale to having some guidance. So, for instance, if I, I think it's kind of well, obviously unjust if. Let's say Caleb loses a finger by slamming his, his because the the maybe the doors automatic doors in Walmart shut on his hand. It lose, he loses a, a right index finger, and he Caleb and I are both pretty much pretty close to the same age and such. And so let's say he loses a right uh, the the index finger on his right hand, and I do the exact same thing um, in a Kroger. Let's say, and let's say Caleb gets five hundred thousand dollars for his finger. And I get four million dollars for my finger. One of us did not receive justice. I think, or it, one I, of you got too much justice. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> is there such a thing? Right, and so, <laughs> too so, much so, justice. So, so, right, and so the thing is, though, that I think there needs to be uh, there, there needs to be some way to figure out what is just. And currently, we have juries for that, and sometimes juries just go nuts. But we have we do have a little bit of a safety measure for that. The court, the judges themselves can put limits on that. I don't know that I trust judges with that kind of power. Um, I think I might trust legislators. Actually, I think I do trust legislators more with that power than I do judges. However, uh, how do you how do you determine that sort of thing? Another thing too well, is the 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 issue that everyone talked about the court reform amendment that was slated to be on the ballot last election. Everyone talked about the. Uh, the five hundred thousand dollar limit for non medical or excuse me for non economic damages. The thing that a lot of people didn't talk about was that that measure, if people had voted for it and uh, approved it, would have handed over the control of the Arkansas courts to the legislature. And in my mind, that's a glaring uh, separation of powers issue. But that's well, the reason why. That's I like, my. That's that, my. Th- that's right. my thought. That, that's that's okay, the let's, reason let's, why let's, I actually let's like let, the thing. Let's go let ahead, Luther, Luther. Get one last look in here before before uh, we let him go. Luther, uh, do you have something specific that's especially bothered you about this? Well, I just don't. I I, I I've been looking around, and I, I I've just been wondering about this. But you know, I've been thinking. So, if the juries can be unreasonable in favor of the plaintiff, isn't it fair to assume the juries can be? unreasonable in favor of the defendant and if so how does tort reform address that situation Uh, that's my last question a jury being Uh, unreasonable in favor of the defendant would possibly be that you know it would be plain to any reasonable person that this plaintiff deserves some measure of justice and the uh the jury just says we don't like your shoes and you know, right. That's not the reason we're going to give for, or, or for going the other way, but we, we don't like something about you, and we're going to give a, a defendant verdict, in which case a verdict for the defense, the plaintiff gets nothing, absolutely nothing. And so that happens, that happens frequently, too. Mm-hmm. Defense me, verdicts happen a lot. Let me, ask, let me ask this from Luther. If you had a loved one, maybe your mother or your wife, that was in a nursing home, and you found out that she had suffered terrible abuse in that nursing home that had led to considerable suffering on her part, and then eventually to her death, 
Would you feel like 500000 would be sufficient recompense to you and your family because that had happened to your mom or to your wife? Do you think that would be fair, that would be enough? I, I think a, 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 a short rope and a tall tree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Luther, you gave us a good idea where you stand. Thanks so much for and calling so the that- Dave Ellswick Show, and we're going to continue to tease your question a little bit here in the uh, – next few minutes right so so that was actually kind of my solution to some of this was that one of our problems is that okay let's say we've got a nursing home situation and say my grandmother's in the nursing home let's let's just say that right and one of the aides or maybe maybe even one of the nurses there is abusing my grandmother and she suffers terribly it it does happen too and so so let's say she suffers terribly and she finally dies from their abuse um should the owner of the nursing home be made to pay a million dollars or five million dollars or or should somebody get go to jail or should someone go to prison or be charged with murder criminal liability criminal liability and so i think that's part of the problem part of the solution i think is that is we need to maybe make criminal liability a more viable option in these in these cases because you've no, got, we're talking about two separate systems, though, right? None of the tort reform that's been discussed no, would have criminal. any effect on the criminal prosecution, would it, Caleb? No, no, civil law and criminal law are two completely different animals, mm-hmm. and ne'er do they meet. Um, you could maybe have criminal liability for something like that, like a manslaughter, negligent homicide, mm-hmm. but uh, but the elements of that are very different than a, than a negligence case like you'd have in civil court. Mm-hmm. It's a different ballgame entirely. Interesting conversations this half hour. Caleb, will you be able to stay over into the next half hour? I can hang out. All right. We're glad to have you. We'll be back after the top of the hour news. We're here visiting with uh, my buddy Paul Calvert and his attorney, Caleb Bumgardner from Eldorado. Glad to have you with us. We'll be taking your questions after the top of the hour news to... Ask anything you want of the lawyer. You can come up with the craziest legal question you want. We don't promise to take it seriously, but we're going to do our best to take it. Please do. Ask me something crazy. Yeah. We'll see you after the news. You're listening to The Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. With lots of diddly diddly lead guitar and people shouting my name, I'll know that I've arrived. Just <laughs> like Dave Ellswick. And thank you for tuning in to 101.1 FM, the Dave Ellswick Show. We all love Dave and miss him, and we hope to see him back here in the big seat running his own show by the early part of next week. But for right now, you've got Dave's old buddy Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance sitting in for Dave today. And I'm lucky to have with me my pal and the Old Testament prophet of the Tuesday panel, (laughs) Paul Calvert. 
I love this guy when he, yes, when he starts talking about the problems of the world. He goes, why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you get some morality? Why don't you just do the right thing? I'm going to go, Paul, yes, go. Yes, do that. <laughs> and we also have with us Paul's attorney. Caleb Bumgarner Bumgarner from El Dorado. We're delighted to have you with us today, and we're going to be willing to take your calls on legal issues this afternoon during the at least the next half hour. If you will call us with a legal question, we will put you on the air with a genuine, bona fide, licensed Arkansas attorney. Now, I say that. I'm not lying, am I? You are not lying. All right. All right. Good. I was was hoping I was telling them the truth that you weren't just – a guy, a shyster with a shingle. You're actually a bona fide lawyer with a law degree. Where'd you go get your law degree? The William H. Bowen School of Law here in Little Rock. I've heard of that. That, that did, you didn't have Bob Steinbach for one of your professors when you were there, did you? Uh, actually, yeah, I did have Robert Steinbach. He was. A, I took a, an elective law and economics, and he was my professor. Did you like him? Yeah, he was a cool guy. He was funny. Yeah, he, uh, that he what a character. Uh, Zach, is he going to be in tomorrow for Dave? Yeah, last Friday Robert was in for Dave, and he'll be in this Friday. Uh, yeah, other than Paul Calvert, Robert Steinbach is my favorite regular guest on the Dave Ellswick show, mm-hmm. and and he's definitely my favorite guest if I'm sitting in for Dave because man, this job is so easy when you got Robert Steinbach on. You just come back from the break and go, well, Robert, what do you think about that? And then just lean back just and wait for, the, wait, <laughs> wait for the next break to come along, and I know uh, that I don't have another thing to do. And he's always entertaining, always uh, funny. So anyway, so I'm glad to hear that you do have a real law degree from a real college. Uh, that turns out real attorneys here no in fooling. Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> and uh, we'd be glad to take your questions. The phone number here is 501-823-0965. If you want to talk to the attorney, Caleb Bumgarner is willing to take your questions. This is the best free legal advice you're liable to get all day. So call us, 501 501- Eight two three zero nine six five. Now, you had a, a legal yeah, question so I, you I, wanted I, to I, ask I, Caleb, didn't you, so Paul? So I've got a question. So what do you what do you say to police when you talk to them, or how do you talk to police? How, how do you uh, want to? Well, ideally, you don't. Uh, <laughs> the best thing you can say to a police officer is nothing, because nine times out of ten, uh, whenever you talk to police, nothing good's going to come of it. There's a something that people believe. Um, I'm sure they have all different kind of reasons for believing it, but people believe that your innocence will protect you, and that is emphatically not true. I've represented people who – That's so disappointing to I, learn. I, I've represented people who were innocent, and uh, and uh, they got caught up in something dirty. I'm not going to go into the, the details of it on the air, but uh, let's just say that – it is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. I'll mm. put it that way. Mm. Well, and the government has deep pockets. They can prosecute you. They can they can um, kind of wreck your life in the mm-hmm. meantime, even if you finally get exonerated <coughs> because the litigation can, can you be say ex- Michael Flynn? <laughs> I mean, if you, you you can you can you may be totally innocent, but if it takes you four or five years to clear your name, and in the meantime you're unemployed. Or you're, or you're nearly unemployable because of your the accusations against you. Like maybe you were accused of, of raping somebody or maybe your whole mm-hmm. football team or your lacrosse team was accused of raping somebody and they lied about it. Well, how could that ever happen? Yeah, yeah. Come on. Of course it never happens. But no, of course it does sometimes happen. As a matter of fact, it did. And so, and so even though you may be right, sometimes 
talking can get you in trouble. All right. Speaking of getting in trouble, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't go to David on line one from Little Rock. David, thank you for calling the Dave Ellswick Show. This isn't Dave Ellswick, is it? No, no, no. Okay. I just got a real, I got a real simple question. I have two kids. Um, I pay child support. One has now in college. The other one lives with the ex. Um, when do I stop paying for the oldest one? What does the uh, court order say with regard to your child support? It's until the oldest is 18 or out of school. Okay, so has either of the, have either of those conditions been met? Uh, yeah, the oldest one has graduated high school and is now in college, and the youngest is 15 and a half, still living with the ex. Is the oldest one 18 or 19? 19. Okay, then both those conditions have been met. What you need to do is... um. Well, the easiest thing to do is call the child support office, and if they're unresponsive, what you'll need to do is hire an attorney, and your attorney can file, uh, they can call it a motion to terminate child support. And basically all that'll be is just a piece of paper written out in a legal format saying, hey, this is the court order that uh, that is binding in this case, uh, telling me to pay child support on this child. Uh, the conditions for my no longer paying child support have been met, so I'm asking the court to order that I no longer be pay uh, be uh, ordered to pay child support, and that should take care of it. All right, that's what I needed to know. Thank you very much, sir. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling, David. If you'd like to get some free legal advice, we're fortunate to have Arkansas attorney Caleb Bumgardner with us here today from the Bumgardner Law Firm and beautiful El Dorado, Arkansas, and he's willing to take your questions. And when we come back from the break, you'll be able to be first up if you call 501-823-0965, and we'd be delighted to field your question on the Dave Ellswick Show. We'll be back right after these important messages. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Sorry Dave's not here, but you got Carl Kimball, Dave's old buddy from Chanel Insurance, sitting in for him today. And we're taking questions on legal advice. If you have a question for attorney Caleb Bumgardner, who's graciously given us some time this afternoon, then you can call us at 823-0965. And we got a call right here in Little Rock from Greg. Greg, are you with me? Did I lose Greg? I pushed the wrong button. There you go. Greg, are you with me? Yeah, I'm with you now. All right. Greg, you're on the line with Caleb Bumgardner. Give him your legal question. Hey, Greg. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my question deals with uh, something that came to mind when you were talking earlier about control and the, the courts versus the legislature, et cetera. My concern is something that's been near and dear to me is the initiative process in this state. Our Constitution, when it was written, gave the people the right to petition their government, uh, you know, to have things put on the ballot that may not be brought up by either the courts or the legislature, for that matter. And recently, our legislature has taken upon themselves to bring that initiative process under severe attack, in my personal opinion. And I would like to know what it would take to get some standing to try to reverse this. When you put an onus of $250,000 plus to the people, which was never the intent, by the way, of putting in the Constitution, when you put that sort of onus on the people to put something on the ballot, 
that's wrong. It's just dead wrong. I think that uh, there are two ways that you could attack this. Uh, the first one is the same reason that the tort reform uh, the tort reform thing got knocked off the ballot, and that was that it tried to do too much in one single amendment. Uh, the law is such that if you want to change the Arkansas Constitution, you want to amend a statute, you've got to do one thing. The uh, tort reform initiative tried to limit non-economic damages. It tried to limit punitive damages. It tried to uh, turn over court rulemaking power to the legislature. It tried to do a whole lot of different stuff. And the Supreme Court of Arkansas said you can't uh, you can't put all that in a single ballot initiative. You got to break it apart. And this uh, this initiative you're talking about, I've I read the bill back when it was before the Senate. I'm very familiar with it. And uh, I share your opinion uh, on that for what it's worth, but it does a whole lot to overhaul the ballot initiative process, which is enshrined in the state constitution. And I think that if you want to knock it off the ballot, then you can go the route that um, that it does too much with one single ballot initiative and do it that way. Another way – now, you uh, you could – you could do this before or after, I think, if people voted for it, is I think there are First Amendment implications there. I think there's some free speech problems there because one of the provisions of that measure is that it says that anybody who has a petition, any people who are gathering signatures to get something on the ballot have to get permission from the owner, the, uh, the owner of uh, a public event – that is otherwise open to the public. So like if I'm going to Music Fest in El Dorado, which everyone should go to, by the way, every fall, <laughs> uh, if I'm going to Music Fest in El Dorado and I'm just going to hear some music and have some good uh, have some good times with my friends, maybe have a drink or two, then I can show up and do whatever I like because it's open to the public. You can talk but if to I'm, people about anything you want to talk, talk to people about. Talk to people about anything I want to talk about. Yeah, we, we can talk about politics. We can even talk about how something should be on the ballot. Right. But, but if I show up with a with a petition and I say I would like you to sign this petition because I think this measure should be on the ballot and if you agree with me, please sign, then I have to go find whoever it is that's uh, that's putting on this event and get their permission to do that and they can tell me no. And if they tell me no and I stay there, then I'm liable for criminal trespass and the police can come arrest me. And that, I think, is an infringement upon political speech, which, of course, is constitutionally problematic. I think I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it. That is an interesting point. And I, and I think you're right that, generally speaking, you go to Walmart or Kroger or, or any place that's generally open to the public, you should have all of your rights unless they say, you know, no, no talking about politics in this store. Then they may be right. an argument. but. If there's no prohibition, generally speaking, your rights exist, I think. Right. Greg, are you a libertarian by chance? Uh, that's how I lean, yes. Yeah, well, uh, the reason I ask is because I was officially one for a number of years and, and kind of philosophically still am. But the Libertarian Party, if you, if you think that they have something to bring to the table, they live – by the petition process. And if you got the petition process, you're going to, not just the Libertarians, but the Green Party and all the third parties are going to be uh, in serious poor shape. 
even more yeah, so well, than I they mean, already are. You're talking about the yeah. you're talking about First Amendment. If if you're in a public space and then they try to limit you from from speaking, there's a thing called prior restraint. Right. So I mean, I, I, that that's how could they possibly write a law that would change that issue of freedom of speech from the Arkansas Constitution or the the uh, you know uh, United States Constitution for that matter? You know that takes away your prior restraint laws to have freedom of speech. Uh, that is that is an excellent question, and I think the the short sweet answer is they can't. And if they do, if uh, if people vote for this, then I think that it needs to be challenged in federal court. And I think there's a reasonably good chance it'll get knocked down. But I want to talk about the the third parties, like uh, like the host brought up, the libertarians, the greens, everybody. Um, Thanks a lot for your call, Greg. It's hard. Sorry, it's hard enough. For these folks to get on the ballot as it is, they have to spend all kinds of money every couple of years to get on the ballot, and that is a uh, that's a, a racket put together by the by the two big parties to yeah. to a prohibit competition. But it's hard enough for them to get on the ballot as it is, and I think that any uh, any further prohibition to that is harmful. Now, one thing that I think is the biggest danger, and I think Greg really brings up a, a good point. This. I think he's referring to this uh, legislature-initiated amendment that we're going to have to vote on uh, next fall, right? That's right. And, the legislature and, and, referred. And this is an entire. This is one of my one of my bugaboos is that when the citizens come together to try and get an initiative on the ballot, the Supreme Court will pick it apart, and you know you can almost be guaranteed. And we had to build that into the cost of our initiative. It wasn't just the cost of going out and getting the thousands and thousands of signatures that needed to be obtained in order to get on the ballot. But then you had to set aside another hundred grand for legal fees because you knew that the people that didn't want you to be on the ballot were going to try and knock you off at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, just like all along the process, they're nitpicky as the dickens against the citizen initiative. Oh, the ballot title's not clear enough. Oh, you're putting too many things into one thing and it shouldn't be all together. It ought to be one thing. But when it's the legislature, the Supreme Court always gives huge deference to anything the legislature puts up there, no matter how dishonest the ballot title is, no matter how many different things they try to cram in there. And Paul knows I'm referring especially to the so-called ethics amendment that really was just cover for them doubling their term limits. And now these dirty, rotten, filthy SOB who pretend to be conservatives up there in the legislature want to come back and put something on the ballot to fool us into voting for this time that's going to strangle the citizens from being able to get anything on the ballot, take away our free speech rights, take away our right to petition the government. I'm outraged by it, and I wish that I wish that we had a Supreme Court with some guts that would stand up to the legislature when they try to gut the constitutional protections that our citizens were given under our Constitution. And, and I, th- I think that that is a serious problem, and I'm not sure exactly how to deal with it, but I think we need to figure out some way to solve those ballot title issues up front so that we don't have people going out and, and spending 
thousands or tens of thousands or maybe hundreds well, you have of thousands to, you have to of get volunteer it hours. You have to get it cleared by the attorney, state attorney general, general before you can yeah, even start too. collecting right. petitions. And then after you've gotten it cleared by the attorney general, they'll still turn around and right. see and, and try and, and get the Supreme right. Court and so to that, throw it off that, for that. That, I think, is the problem. I think, I think once it clears, I think it ought to be clear, and then goes on the ballot, and then people vote on it, they vote on it. But I, I think it's a problem, though, when, when people go to all this effort to collect signatures for something, and then the Supreme Court comes along and just throws away those hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours, perhaps. For, it's a gut punch, let me tell you. Yeah. There's a lot of volunteer hours, and there's also a lot of people that make a living gathering mm-hmm. signatures. Right. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I've done that before. Like when I was uh, when I was on break from law school, that's how I made money for a while. Mm-hmm. But I got friends who go around the country from state to state whenever there's a ballot yeah, initiative. Professional they, signature gathering. They get picked up and they go to California, Minnesota, you know, wherever it is, and they get paid by the signature. And mm-hmm. they are, you know, they're hardworking, they're industrious, and they're mm-hmm. able to make a living doing that mm-hmm. with that hustle. Right. Right, and so that's, that's just one of those things. I, I think it would be good to have some means of establishing these things up front. Maybe the solution is, we, you know, we maybe the Supreme Court gets to write the write the the titles or something of that nature. So we you go and tell them this is what we want to do. This is what we think it should be called. Do you approve this? And if they approve it, it's over. Right? Is that unreasonable? That seems pretty reasonable to me. I mean, if they're going to be the ones that are going to determine it at the end of the day, anyway. I mean. I mean, it is, I don't know, it just, it just seems kind of fundamentally unfair that people go to all this effort, they, they get the thing approved by the Attorney General's office, then they, they spend tens of thousands or, or, or hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours collecting signatures for something that they believe in, and then a month before the election, the Supreme Court says, oh, you didn't dot this I. Yeah, or, or or they'll come back and like they did on uh, a recent one, and they went back and they combed through after it had already been certified for the ballot as having enough signatures. They went back and tried to find where they could find one line on one petition that they could uh, that they could question. They'd throw out the whole page, ten, ten and so they get whatever, nine right. others. They'd find one they could nitpick, and they'd throw nine others off. And that disenfranchises. That's one, that's one thing if you do it when you're actually in the counting process. This is after the process right. is supposedly over. Okay, well, we're going to have to take a break for the news at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, we're going to have more questions with our attorney du jour, Caleb Bumgardner from Bumgardner Law Firm in El Dorado, Arkansas. We're delighted to have him with us, and we'll see you after the news. Oh, gosh, we do wish that Dave was back. But patience, my children. It will only be a few days when the man himself will be back behind the microphone. In the meantime, Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance sitting in for Dave on this beautiful Thursday afternoon with Paul Calvert and Attorney Caleb Bumgardner, who's taking your questions, who's very graciously being generous of his time, and Don and Cabot would like to ask a question. Don, you're on the line with Caleb Bumgardner from Eldorado. Ask him your question. Hey, Don. Uh, hey, uh, my question is real simple. I know that when an individual wants to um, put a initial uh, uh, citizen initiative on the ballot, they got to pay money to get that put on the ballot. Does the state legislature, when they do initiative, do they have to pay? And if not, why not? 
No, they do not. Uh, the law gives the legislature the prerogative to put up to three measures on the ballot every two years. The legislature meets every year. Uh, they have either a general session or a fiscal session. The fiscal sessions, they just do the budget for the next fiscal year for the state. In the general session, they uh, they can do that and anything else they want to do. And every general session, the law gives them the prerogative to put up to three measures on the ballot for people to vote on. And no, they don't have to pay anything to do that because, uh, quite frankly, it's good to be king. <laughs> don't they get a fourth one if it has yeah. to do with their salaries? <laughs> I'm sure they like that. Well, and, and these ballot initiatives... The, those are constitutional amendments, and so they they can also refer other ballot initiatives that are not constitutional. They can do as many of those as they want, can't they? Um, well, they, I they actually don't have don't, to do a ballot initiative; they, they pass just pass it right. and it's law. Right. Yeah, one, exactly. One of, one of the ways that they can kind of push it off and say, "I didn't vote for a tax increase or something of that nature," is about, well, we're going to vote to let the people vote on it. Right. So I think that yeah, that happened a few years ago with this half cent sales tax that they're trying to renew right now. Yeah. If I recall correctly, no, I, th- I, I think personally, I think that if it's good for them to have up to what three initiatives every two years, why can't we, the citizens, have the same right? That is an excellent question. Well, we can have, we can have, we should, I'm with you, Don. Uh, we can have far more than three. Um, and we just got to pay for them. We got to get signatures for them. For them. And, um, yeah, but see, I mean, we got to pay for it, then we got to pay for signatures, then we got to let it go to the uh, uh, attorney general, and then we got to. People yeah, want to sue us, so we got to pay more and more and more. Right, there's a lot, a lot of expenses think, involved. I don't know if there's any actual cost, I, though, is there? Is I, I there... think that getting the uh, um, Axe the Food Tax Amendment on the ballot in 2002, counting oh. attorney fees to defend it before the Supreme Court, I'm sure that we spent at least a half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, course, I mean, that shouldn't happen. That, I mean, and that was 18 years ago almost. Mm-hmm. I, I know. I voted for that. God bless you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a liber- I'm a libertarian by nature. I think the smaller our government is, and the less interference they have in my life, the better off they are. Amen, brother. I'm with you. I have to vote Republican because they're the closest thing to being a conservative that I can find. Well, Don, you know, my favorite living historian is Victor Davis Hanson. In his column, he had a column that I thought we might get to today and we didn't, but uh, he had a column on uh, January of this year in which he said, most people don't support Trump because they like Trump. Most people support Trump because they see him as their last bastion against economic collapse, societal decay, and socialism. Oh, yeah, that's about right. So, you know, we got to settle for a Republican sometimes if that's our only choice between that and Hillary Clinton or something equally odious. The lesser yeah. of two, lesser did of two you, evils. Did you get a... your question answered, Don? Well, yes and no. I mean, really, I, I'm just trying to think, is there any way that we can get an initiative on the ballot that doesn't cost an arm and a leg that says, hey, uh, if you guys want to do something stupid, we need to be able to well, – well, I agree with you on well, this one. Sorry. Well, I, I think the way to the, do it uh, that doesn't cost. Court. I think the way to do it without without spending lots of money is to get lots of volunteers. I, I don't know that there's any inherent expenses as far as. Right. Um, I don't think there's any state fees. I don't. Is there? I don't think there are. I don't know that for a fact. But yeah, theoretically, if you could get enough people 
willing to volunteer their time and effort to <laughs> gather that many signatures, you could do it for fairly minimal expense, at least as paper as far as having the paper cost. Well, uh, Caleb and Don, uh, th- this is something I do have a little bit of experience at. When we ran the food tax repeal uh, initiative in 2001 and 2002, that was wildly popular. That's the reason I talked the Libertarian Party into getting behind us. We weren't getting anywhere with candidates. I said, let's get a issue that most Arkansans mm-hmm. agree with us on and sure. become a champion of the people. And uh, that was one thing that I think the overwhelming majority of the people of Arkansas agreed on was that it would be better if we didn't tax groceries. And yet, even with that level of popularity, and we had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers out collecting signatures, and I know that the people that were in the Libertarian Committee and I were going around the state and spending thousands of hours working on it, and yet we still had to hire. He talked about uh, friends of Greg's that, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, Caleb said, Caleb said uh, there were friends of his that made a living by going around and being professional signature gatherers. We would not have gotten enough signatures. And, you know, we have to get like 3% of what they had in the last gubernatorial election in order to get on the ballot. And, of course, you got to get about Five percent in order for three percent of them to pass muster mm-hmm. when they go through and kick out the ones that have a small mistake on them, or the guy's moved, or he lied about being registered, mm-hmm. or or he's signed on the wrong county's petition, or whatever it was. But the the task, even eighteen years ago, the number of signatures we needed then was something like eighty thousand valid signatures, mm-hmm. which meant getting one hundred and twenty thousand actual signatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was just no possible way to do it with volunteers. The only way that we could do it was to hire the hired guns like Caleb's friend who go from state to state trying to uh, get petitions on the ballot. And coming up with the money to pay for those people is the only way we were able to get something even as wildly popular as taking the tax off groceries was. So what do you, what do you think, Caleb, about maybe um, Mr. Kimball as well, what do you think about – setting up some method of, a, of an online signing, figure out some way to actually sign your name to a petition online. Uh, that, people, that's the other question I've got, gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, people do that all the time. Um, I'm sure that anybody who listens to this show, just the fact that you're listening at all means that you're at least somewhat politically engaged, which mm-hmm. means that you probably have uh, groups that you align with politically, emailing you saying, "Hey, we have this petition mm. for this but, thing but that we'd like to sign." None of those are actual real right. petitions that will actually right, do right. anything. No, th- right? those are those are ways for those groups to get your information and start sending you stuff. Mm-hmm. But the mechanism is already there. Uh, you can write. You can absolutely write up a software program to do mm-hmm. something like that. It would just be a matter of. You know, doing something like that to make it official. Now, the one thing that you have fraud to, be a much graver possibility. That's, that's what I was going to say. You could have a you could have a bot, uh, you know, a computer program that's not actually a real person go in there and delete signatures or add signatures, mm-hmm. and you'd have to figure out a way to, to safeguard against that. Mm-hmm. But presuming that you could do that, then yeah, yeah that would be a great idea. I mean, one of the one of the safeguards about that is that one of the things about signatures is that. Those are not secret like votes. Right. So it's it was not a secret ballot type thing with signatures. And so if you put the list of signatures up online and I say, hey, you know what? I want to wonder I wonder if somebody put my signature on that thing. <laughs> so I go and look up the look up my name and look up Calvert and hey, it says Paul Calvert. 
I don't remember signing that. With my address, I didn't sign that. And so I call him up and say, hey, there's some fraud going on here. Okay, let's give Don one more chance to get his two bits worth in before we have to go to a break. Don, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add or additional questions you'd like to ask? No, I just want to make one final comment. And that is, why doesn't the state legislature have to get all the damn signatures also? Well, it's because they're the damn legislature, as you said, which I think put it about as eloquently as anyone could. Thanks a lot for calling, Don. Keep listening. we got more to talk about. Uh, when will. you talk about these these petitions, and, of course, it, the legislature, it's an entirely different situation. But, you know, if you're going to do it online, it's hard enough to protect against fraud uh, anyway. But when you're doing it online, it seems to me that, that doing it online, you're going to be way too open to fraud and too open to things like the bots and, you know, the Russians interfered in my petition campaign. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, so. I don't know. see what happens. Uh, okay. Well, we're going to take right, one last. Take Thank you for being with us today, Don. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll have time for one or two more questions when we come back from our final break of the hour. You're listening to Carl Kimball sitting in for Dave Ellswick on The Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM. And we'll be back right after we pay these important bills. All right, you're back on the Dave Ellswick Show with Carl Kimball, Paul Calvert, and attorney Caleb Bumgardner. And there was something that you wanted to We're kind of in the waning minutes right now. And before we go, there was something you wanted to talk to us about, Caleb. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, about this uh, ballot question that we've been talking about in the signature gathering uh, there is a Facebook group that I want to plug. It's called Protect Arkansas Voices Now. Arkansas is shortened to AR. So if you look for it on Facebook, you'll find it as Protect AR Voices. Okay. Or, you know, in Arkansas accent, Protect Our Voices. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Protect Our Voices. If you uh, go there and like that Facebook group, that is uh, a group that is currently organizing to defeat this ballot initiative and uh, look for, look for more out of them in the coming months. Man, if you can beat that initiative down, or not an initiative because it's a, a legislative, but if you can beat that proposed legislative Proposal. amendment yeah. down, you'll be doing God's work in my mind. I, uh, I'm glad to hear you say that, and I agree wholeheartedly. Now, the other thing I want to tell folk is this is some of my favorite legal advice oh, to, to give people. Uh, if you forget everything else you've heard me say or any lawyer you've ever heard say uh, except this, then remember this. Uh, Paul was talking earlier about, you know, when should I talk to the police? And uh, the best answer to that is never if you can help it. But if uh, you are approached by an officer and the officer starts talking to you, uh, the first question out of your mouth should be, officer, am I being detained now, you don't have to be arrested in order to be detained. Being arrested means that you have been placed under arrest and that they're going to take you to the police station. Being detained just means that you're being held, not necessarily that they're going to take you in, but that you're not free to leave. If you are not free to leave, then you are being detained and the Fourth Amendment attaches. Your Fourth Amendment rights kick in immediately upon detainment. So... You ask if you're being detained, and if they say, no, you're not being detained, then you say, thank you, officer. Have a lovely day. And then you go about your business. And you go they, waltzing off, huh? Exactly. And if they say, yes, you are being detained, you're not free to leave, the only other words out of your mouth need to be this. You say, I am exercising my right to remain silent. I want to speak to my attorney. 
and you don't say anything else. And the reason for that is because once you have evoked your right to counsel, the police are forbidden from questioning you because your other constitutional rights have kicked in, like your Sixth Amendment right. Your right to counsel has kicked in, and they cannot ask you questions badger, without your lawyer kind of present. Badger you into into ask, answering questions that you don't know how to answer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so maybe one of the things you might might be useful to inform people about is that you can be detained for various different reasons, and not all of them are because you're a criminal. Sometimes it's because you're a witness. Yeah, that's exactly it. Or maybe you know, maybe they think you're a criminal. Right. It, it, it doesn't have to be because uh, because they suspect you of anything necessarily. It can just be that no, you're not free to leave because we want to talk to you and we said so. But you know, depending on how things go, if you uh, say the the right answer to the wrong question that a perception of you by law enforcement can change. And one more thing I want to say before we wrap up, because this is really important and a whole lot of people Mm -hmm. don't know this. There was a Supreme Court case came out a few years ago, Salinas v. Texas, Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, a lot of people think that by exercising your right to remain silent, that just means that you clam up and you don't say anything. Like if the cops start asking you questions, you just don't respond and uh, that's the uh, that's the intuitive and reasonable answer. But the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in that case that you actually have to actively invoke your right to remain silent in order for it to attach. You actually have to say, I am exercising my right to remain silent. And then you shut up. And if you speak again after invoking that right before your attorney is present you have waived your right to remain silent and they can begin to question then you then they question you and everything so they, you say can and will be used against you in a court of law absolutely what happened in Salinas v Texas was they uh suspected this guy of using a shotgun in the commission of a crime and they said is this your gun and he clammed up and did not respond at his trial his silence was used against him what? I didn't know they could do that. Theoretically, silence is not is not a. They 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 can they convince the jury like this is when he stopped talking. He was more than happy to talk to us until we asked him, "Is this your gun?" And then he stopped talking. Now, so, what does that say to you, ladies and gentlemen so of the, the jury? So, the, how does that not grounds to make them lose their law license? I mean, for them to to encourage the jury to. To come to the conclusion, oh, this guy was silent, therefore his silence is damning. His guilt, exactly. Right. I mean— And you thought we lived in a free country. Yeah. I mean, but, but the, the nature of, of, <clears throat> of our system, if I understand it correctly, is that silence is silence. It means nothing. That's what, uh, that's what most reasonable people think. But that is, uh, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, that is no longer how it works. So how far do you think that we should carry this uh, saying nothing to the police officer comes up to you? You're having a sandwich in a city park and an officer walks up to you and says, well, I've been told I need to take names of anybody that's in this park because uh, there's been some suspicious activity going on and we just need to know who you are and where are you from? Wouldn't well, those sort of things, say, that's gosh, a, officer, I'm so-and-so, and I'm just here having a sandwich and listening to the radio. Uh, you could say that, but what I would encourage you to say is, officer, um, I'm sitting here eating my lunch on this park bench. Am I free to perhaps go and enjoy my sandwich elsewhere? 
<laughs> and how you respond to that depends on what he, that officer says to you, how they answer that question. So, so is it fair to say that generally speaking, you are not obligated to give your name and address unless you're suspected of some crime? Um, if you are stopped at a traffic stop, then, you know, that's a different I mean, I guess you'd be suspected of a crime. And otherwise, they wouldn't pull you stop over. You, right? right, right, right. And, and so Unless you're without, your so, taillights busted, bub. Yeah, so without, reason, without <laughs> reasonable – they can't pull you over without reasonable suspicion. So absent reasonable suspicion, if they just come up to you in the park, um, maybe they are, you know, just taking names, trying to figure out who's there. But it, it seems to me, and maybe this is just my uh, paranoid criminal defense attorney since kicking in, but – it seems to me that if they weren't at least a little suspicious of you sitting there in the park enjoying your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, that they wouldn't be coming up to you asking your name and address. And so I think that you should be wary and act accordingly. So maybe your beard's just a little bit too long, or maybe you, you forgot. I quit eating sandwiches in that park after that. Uh, well, maybe, maybe. And, and so, and I think, I think, I think up, up until maybe a few years ago, like in New York City, the police used to do a stop and frisk sort mm-hmm. of thing where they would just find somebody and say, eh, you kind of look suspicious, and they'd go and frisk them, which is basically um, sort of like sexual assault. Kind right. of a Fourth Amendment problem. Uh, it, yeah, not, not kind of. It's a, it's no, a serious it, it Fourth absolutely Amendment is. issue. absolutely is. The Supreme Court of the United States, to their credit, knocked that down mm-hmm. and said it was unconstitutional. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's assault is what it is. It's coming up and, and, and telling someone, you must be still while I feel you up. I mean, generally speaking, if anybody else does that, you can break their arm and the and the police can come and arrest that person because they were assaulting you and trying to kidnap you while making you hold still for them to fill you up. Right. I mean, that's that's generally how that works. But for some reason, those police there in New York City seem to think that was OK. Well, they learned otherwise, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. And, and, that's, and it's it, it's fortunate that they've kind of come around on that. But there were people that were suffering that kind of indignity for a while at least uh, it's it's an awful thing because it's an excuse to uh, you know the the idea of who is suspicious and why is left up to the uh, entirely subjective discretion mm-hmm. of the officer and depending on that officer well buddy your beard's a little bit too long or maybe your skin's a little bit too dark and so you you look suspicious to me or maybe you're in the wrong area of town yeah what are you doing yeah right. you, what are you doing you don't live around right. here. so it's brown versus state of texas i think was the case dealing with a fella that was kind of in the wrong area of town mm-hmm. and um so apparently if i understand the case remember the case correctly he was just they saw, the police saw him walking away from from somebody else and so they suspected, you know what, he might have been up to no good. Maybe he was doing a drug deal or something of that nature. So they stopped the guy, and he refused to identify himself. And then the Supreme Court recognized, no, he did have the, did have every right to, to clam up and not tell them who he was and not give them his information because they had no actual um, um, articulable um, suspicion. Yeah, no reasonable suspicion. In order for, a, no in order for an officer to detain you, they have to have reasonable suspicion. In order for them to arrest you, they have to have what's called probable cause, which is a higher burden of proof. Which is kind of, they're kind of the same thing, I think. If you're going to if you're going to go from a fourth Fourth Amendment perspective, I know the courts have separated those somewhat, and I, I think that's a little bit problematic from a purist standpoint. But I, now I, I hear that it's just it's it's hard it's harder to it's harder to it's it's harder to make probable cause stick. Right. 
at least theoretically. Theoretically. Well, we thank you for all the theoretical advice. It was worth <laughs> everything you paid for it, audience, and we hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, and we do really appreciate uh, attorney Caleb Bumgardner from Bumgardner Law Firm in El Dorado being with us this afternoon to answer some of your legal questions. Thanks to my buddy Paul Calvert yes, for lending a uh, little air of gravitas to, in other words, uh, <laughs> otherwise a wild and woolly one. Thanks, uh, it was great to be able to sit in for Dave Ellswick a couple of times this week, and I'm looking forward to Dave being back. Thanks again for being with us. Carl Kimball from Chanel Insurance signing out. And uh, we're going to have a best of hour. We'll be from 5 to 6. And Robert Steinbach tomorrow. That'll be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We'll see you next time around. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.